Well, thank you all again for being here on a Saturday morning. Does everybody have the handouts? If you don't, there are extra copies over there with Matthew, but uh, we're going to start on the handout that says nine marks of a healthy church. It's a little front and back, single page handout. And we're actually going to start on the back of that sheet with points six and seven first. And before we jump into all that, uh, Jerry, could you uh, pray for our time together? Yeah, I'd love to. Father, we are grateful uh, for the, the opportunity to meet this morning and talk about things that are eternal, things that matter. Uh, what a joy. Thank you for um, these folks that uh, are interested in um, joining North Avenue. And I would ask, Lord, that you'd give them wisdom and grace and uh, make this a productive morning for your, for your glory. We thank you for the food. We thank you for uh, just the countless blessings, another beautiful rain last night, um, and ask that you would really use this time um, in a way greater than we could really even ask or imagine for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, we want to take some time to talk about what our church believes, what, what we teach, what we stand for, and what church membership looks like in our church. And so we will start here. These nine marks of a healthy church came from a guy named Mark Dever, who's a pastor in Washington, D.C., who wrote a book by that same title. And these are not the only things that should be in a healthy church, but they are certainly uh, nine distinctives that we think should be in any uh, healthy church. So starting with six and seven, we're going to spend a, a little bit of extended time on these two points uh, to start us off. Let me, uh, or Greg, could you read number six? Yes. Yeah. All right. A biblical understanding of church membership. Church membership is a privilege and a responsibility and needs to be regarded as such. People should only be members if they are dedicated to the church in attendance, prayer, service, and giving. To allow people to become and remain members for sentimental or other unbiblical reasons makes light of membership and may even be dangerous. So our goal isn't just simply to be critical of other churches, but I think it's been, it's been a tendency in the last, say, century... And, and we'll pick on the Baptist denomination, but it's been a, it's been a very a t- tempting thing for Baptist churches to make membership a really watered-down reality, I think, where someone comes up after a service, and you've met them for a, a total of 15 seconds, and you shake their hand, and they say, I want to join the church, and you say, all right, you're, you're a member of our church, and then within about five seconds, you put them on the roll, and you don't really know anything about their life or what's going on in their life, and then oftentimes membership has very little sense of commitment to it. So, you know, our, our dad's story, and you might help me remember what happened here, but back in Dorval, when I was born, and we were living in Dorval, and my dad was at uh, a church there, and uh, they had, do you remember the, how many people were on the roll versus how many were actually attending on a regular basis? I mean, it was over 500, I think, on the roll, and then probably just a few hundred probably were, maybe even less than that were attending, I think, yeah. So we had, we had more than twice as many people who were members than would come on Sunday, like just year in and year out. And so, what, can you tell what dad did when he... I mean, he just, he dug into it and he cut down the roll dramatically uh, because some people had died and all kinds of things have happened. So he cut down the roll. And so he, the, the church that he was the associate minister of got, it was like in an article or written like the, the, the biggest drop of membership like in a year happened. I mean, they went from 500 to 200 or whatever it was. I mean, he wants to take it very seriously of like who's actual members because he's accountable to God for these members. So he was going to be very rigid with that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of this joke that, you know, my dad's church lost 300 members in one year. Like, how did that happen? Well, they weren't coming. <laughs> these people, you could hardly track down some of these people. And they would try to reach out to them if they were living and they were moved away. And they would just talk to them, like say, like, hey, are you guys going to a church somewhere? What's going on? And they, they cleared the roles. And Mark Dever, the guy who wrote this book, had a similar story in D.C. when he first got there. He they had 
hundreds and hundreds more people on their attendance, on their, uh, you know, on their membership than, than were actually attending on a Sunday. So he did the same thing. And uh, it was kind of an infamous thing where, you know, he, he also got a lot of flack for it. But he, he said, listen, I'm accountable for, for the people who are members of our church. And if no one in the attending body has ever even heard of this particular person because they last attended here 35 years ago, then why in the world, how can I be responsible for a person that I've never met? I don't know who they are. They don't even live in D.C. anymore. They've moved away 30 years ago. And yet, for sentimental reasons, we keep them on the, on the, on the membership list. So we, we want to talk uh, about that. If you turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. just want to look at really one verse here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So just, just one more time. There's a lot in this short verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So, so let's stop here for a second. Is this saying that every Christian is accountable to every church leader or pastor in the world? That doesn't even make any sense, right? So I'm not accountable to a pastor at some other church, right? You're not accountable to some pastor in some church you've never been to. So clearly when it says obey your leaders and submit to them, it's referring to a local church, right? So you have a local church with particular members of that church, with particular leaders or elders or pastors in that particular church, and you're accountable to them. Just, just like um, uh, I, I've used the analogy of a restaurant versus a soccer team. I use this all the time. But uh, re- how we think about church membership is either going to be like how we think about restaurants or how we think about a soccer team. So with a restaurant, you choose your restaurant each week based on what you feel like eating that week. So you want Italian one week, you want Mexican food one week, whatever it is, whatever your feelings are, you go to that restaurant and you eat there. When you are there, you're not there to serve, right? You know, if, if a drink gets spilled, you're not going to go find a mop or go start cleaning this thing up. You're going to, the waiter or waitress will come and, and, and clean, the, clean the mess up and you just sort of you're, you're there to be served, not to serve, right? You're there just kind of live by your appetite, and that's what you do. Whereas, I think a lot of people think of church that way, where this Sunday, I, I love the music at this church. I'm going to go there. Next Sunday, you know, I really like there's a preacher at this other church. I think this, this preacher's great. I want to go hear that preacher this week. Oh, you know, the, I got some friends who go to this other church. I kind of want to hang out with them this Sunday. And it, I have to be honest, in college, there were a few years where I did this, Okay, so it's, it's a regret I have from my college years. But I did just sort of jump around depending on what I felt like. You know, I'd go to our church, I'd go to another church, I'd go to a different church. I was jumping all over the place uh, during a time in college. Uh, when I say our church, I mean the church Scott and I came from. And that's not a biblical notion of church membership. Let's think of a soccer team. And w- with a soccer team, do you have a particular coach or set of coaches that you're accountable to? Yes. Do you have a particular, like a roster sheet that has like all the names of all the players on your team? Do you know exactly who are the members of your team and who are not the members of your team? And is there a sense of accountability? You know, maybe you try out for soccer, you get to know the coaches, you want to be part of the team, they select you to be part of the team, there's this mutual agreement, and then you're on the team. Listen, could you have friends who are from other soccer teams? Of course. Could you even go practice with another soccer team if you wanted to? Sure. But does that make you part? of that team. No, there's a particular team with accountability built in and particular coaches who oversee that team. And so here in in Hebrews 13, we are accountable to a particular set of uh, of leaders, and uh, they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will give an account. 
You know, we've said we're always responsible for what we teach at our church, no matter who is there. We're always responsible for what we teach, but we're not responsible for everyone who is present on a Sunday. Um, if someone visits, we are not going to give an account of their soul before God. That's not, gonna, that's not part of it. But we are, are going to give an account for the ones we are charged to keep watch over, mm -hmm. and those are the members of the church. And so, uh, again, we're, we're not accountable for attenders. We're accountable for the members of the church. And so thoughts on that concept? I think that's kind of the reason why we have 37 reasons not to join North Avenue Church. <laughs> right? Ben got through about 17 of them on the phone one time. You know, it's just there isn't, it, not everybody, like, it's, it's a little bit of a different, and, and that's just the way it is. It, we meet on Sunday afternoon, not everybody meets on Sunday afternoon. We, we teach from a Reformed perspective, not everybody is going to teach from that same perspective. We practice church discipline, not everybody's going to. So there's all of these kind of distinctives, partly why we've asked you to be here this morning, to go over to just not surprise anybody. That somebody's not three months in and is a good night. We didn't know that they were doing it that way because that's not what maybe we've been used to um, in, the, in the past. And so we are never trying to get, and I hope you don't feel like this this morning, more church members just so that that number goes up. We would love for whoever the Lord is calling to be at our church to be here. And we are thrilled when God calls someone to, to do that. But it is not our goal to get more members for the sake of that number. Yeah, we, we would say the health of a church is more important than the size of a church. For sure. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think the size is more important than the health, and that's just not a biblical notion. There's nothing wrong yeah. with having a large church. There's nothing wrong with having a small church. The issue is, is the church faithful to Scripture or not? And the spiritual growth is way more important to us than the numbers, more, more numbers, you know, the depth. Well, and we're not going to, you know, fill out one of those annual church profiles where we talk about, well, we baptize this many, we, you know, um, because you look at the focus here that we have on this sixth mark, uh, what it looks like to be dedicated to the church, attendance, prayer, service, and giving. You can measure that in some way, um, but most people, in a, or when I say a lot of churches, like attendance is optional if you profess faith. You know, that's great. You're a member of the church. Come, come when you want to. Um, pray when you want to. Serve when you want to. Give when you want to. Um, and that's just not the way the Bible talks about it. I mean, the Bible expects if we're committing to Christ, we're committing to his people. I mean, something I've gone, come back to so many times when it, when it comes to our commitment to the local church. Think about when Jesus confronted the apostle Paul before he was the apostle and he was persecuting the church, you know, trying to stamp the church out. And when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Mm. He says, why are you persecuting me? Mm. And so Jesus so closely identifies with his church that to be committed to him is necessarily to be committed to the other. And for someone to say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't have time for the church, you don't love Jesus. Or at least you've, re you've got to really work on, you know, you've got to get some stuff fixed. Because to, to not be committed to the people of God is a slap in the face to the Lord who died to create those people um, and bring them back. I mean, like it's, it's denying the value of the cross, it's denying the work of the Holy Spirit, and in a whole lot of other ways. And so membership, um, commitment to a church, 
being involved in a church, serving, giving, like that's all an aspect of our relationship with Christ. Um, and to say that we can be a faithful Christian without being faithful to a local body, that, that's just a contradiction in terms. And so, you know, when we, when we say these things, it's, it's not like we're trying to come up with an arbitrary list. This is what, you know, Scripture, if we had time, we could go to, you know, and give a lot of scriptural foundation for this. Um, you know, this is what Scripture leads us to, um, and this is how the Scripture says we are, are to be faithful to Christ. And so it's ultimately about that relationship that we have with the Lord, uh, what we do with the church. Scott, could you mention how both of us struggled to find the right place in the local church right after we were converted? Can you just say a word about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, we, we both became Christians, I guess, Mark was 16, I was 23-ish, and uh, loved the Bible, loved hearing preaching, like everything was changed, affections for Jesus, all these things were happening. But then we were listening to people like Dever and other guys, and they kept talking about the, the importance of the local church. Like over and over, I'd just hear this, and I knew that I wasn't practicing what they were saying. I'm like, why are they making such a big yeah. deal about the local church? It, well, it was because this was lacking in me. Like I would go pretty much regularly. I loved to hear my dad preach, but I wouldn't fold my life into the body. I, I wasn't folding my life into the other believers in the, in the church. So it was this huge lacking area in my life. And, and what I would say is we were missing out. Like we were missing out huge and I think we didn't even realize uh, how good it would be to fold in. And once you begin to fold into the life of a church, yes, it, it's like you, you join that soccer team, it takes discipline, you have to sacrifice. But when you do it, it's like, oh man, this is great to be a part of this team. It's, how much more true is that of the local church? Like when you fold into the life of the church, I, I, when North Avenue started, we were just, we folded in in a way we never had to that degree before. Like every week we're seeing the same people and you just feel, I mean, it was like no sacrifice. It's like you love to be around these yeah. people. You, be, you, you just grow in your love for the people. I mean, the story I've told so many times is the discussion group, we were there for several months seeing the same basic 10 people. I remember looking around the room just saying, I love the people in this room. I genuinely love these people because you're seeing them. And so just the benefit, like if you don't, and it doesn't have to be this church, but whatever church you join, you want to fold in and make your life a part of it because you're going to be built up and strengthened in a way that you just can't be on your own. So, I mean, yes, the local church is so vital to, to our lives. Just to back up just for one second before we get too far down the way here, the, the, the church started uh, just, what, six and a half years ago? So it started January of 2016. And just to give a very brief kind of why did we start this church, uh, we were all, in fact, all four of us were coming from different churches. <laughs> I mean, we, we all came from different places. We didn't all come from the same church, although we all, we, we, uh, at least the three of us knew each other at the time. We got to know you soon after this church started. But when, when this church started... It really started off with, um, I was looking for a pastoral job somewhere, right? I was, I was trying to find a church in the area that, 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 that might, would hire me. And um, Jerry and I had this strange occurrence. And it, I really do think the, the Lord was, was, it was behind this. But we had a number of different uh, men who live in this area who would say to us different times, it was almost strange. It, within a course of a year or two, mm -hmm. we had a whole bunch of different guys who came to us. One guy took me to coffee. To, I mean, I, heard, I don't even know him that well. He took me to coffee just to tell me, hey, have you and Jerry thought about starting a church in the Athens area? It could be both for Madison County, Danielsville people, and also for Oconee, you know, South Athens to East Athens, like all around Athens area. Like, I really think there's a hunger for uh, a love for Scripture and a, a deeper teaching of Scripture, like a real expositional preaching type of, of, of thing. And so at first, I was not interested in starting a church. I wanted to go to an existing church. As well. That was my goal. But uh, doors were closing and opening in such a way that it just seemed like the Lord was really steering us in this direction and eventually, uh, Jerry and I uh, stumbled here onto this. We, we thought, you know, this location, 
You may wonder why here, like why are we at this spot uh, where, where Central Baptist is located? Well, th- this spot is right off the loop, which is always nice for traveling around Athens, right off the loop. And then also it's sort of, it's right between the, the Madison County, Danielsville section of Athens, you know, heading up north uh, west, da- uh, nor- northeast, and then heading also down toward Oconee. So it was really accessible from these two areas we were trying to, to, to particularly um, make open for, for this church. And so we, we, we came here on a summer day. Uh, Jerry and I just didn't even set up an appointment. We just drove onto the campus of this church and we went and knocked on the door. And the pastor at the time was Rick Veal. And he opened the door and, and he had no idea who we were. And he, we walked in. Can you tell what happened? We walked in. Oh, the- yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> you know, and we were, it was not the way to plan a church the way we did anything. We could write a book on how not to plan a church and that would be part of it and so he comes in mark's guy's Jurassic park t-shirt on and we go in and to impress him i think and uh and sure enough he just buys it hook line and sinker from like two minutes in he's like man yeah this is a great idea you guys ought to meet here and and we had heard things that would be way contrary to that about this church is like there's just not a chance that they would want you and uh, but somebody had sent us here to say you, and I, so boy, by the Lord's grace, he just said, we went and met with their deacons. Um, they probably at that point could use um, a little bit of extra money that we could pay them, although that was very small at that time. And, uh, and they welcomed us with, with open arms. And it's been six and a half years of a glorious relationship, even though um, our congregations um, the intent is not to blend with them. They have just been so gracious, and God has used this place, um, you know, obviously to meet here this morning, a perfect place for us. So we don't, you know, have any plans currently to be anywhere else, although if the Lord provided somewhere else, we wouldn't be necessarily against that, but it's just been such a, a, a huge blessing for for us. And a word about how God's provided even financially, because we were so unsure what was, you know, what's going to happen. It felt yeah. like we were stepping into the dark, starting the church. Like, what's this going to look like? Yeah. Didn't it seem like 600 bucks that we start a month or 800? <laughs> it was a ridiculously low uh, amount. And um, and now we, we pay 3,500 um, <laughs> Three, a month. 3,000, I think, is what 3,000 it is. 3,000 now? Okay. So it is a, um, a situation where that has gone up as we've been able to to pay more, but um, boy, God has, has financially provided to where now there's 400 and something thousand dollars that has, that God has given us that, um, you know, that we kind of keep to say, well, in case Central doesn't want us anymore, we're going to need to scramble around to, to find a different building, but they seem more than ever uh, happy to have us here, and we're more than ever happy to be here. It's just—it's been amazing to see God provide financially. Yeah. We've never had any dire financial needs since we started, and uh, we've just been shocked at the fact that people have been so generous. We—we we made up—I don't, you know, right or wrong. We made a point to not emphasize like you've got to give. Like you know, sometimes you can ha- get a bad vibe from sometimes how giving is talked about in a church. But we, we've tried to minimize that. We don't want to ignore what Scripture says. Scripture encourages us to be generous, but we, we haven't tried to make a big deal of like. You need to be giving, come on. And so we just kind of leave the offering box in the back of the room and we have a way to give online, but we, we don't really talk about it much in the service. And, and the Lord has just been so kind anyway to just, our people have been so generous from the very beginning and it's been shocking and amazing to see the whole time. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah, and so that has been, um, it has been shocking. And we shouldn't be shocked always by the Lord's 
uh, the way he does things, but he has added that blessing kind of as confirmation that uh, this is the way we need to go. So let's move to the, the, this is, I guess, point number seven on the sheet, biblical church discipline. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And again, our goal in starting the church was to, to be as biblical as we know to be when it comes to how to how to, how to uh, navigate a local church and how to, how to have leadership and what to do. And so th- this, this point is certainly not necessarily popular today, uh, but I think it is clearly biblical. Greg, could you start reading Matthew 18, starting at verse 10? Yeah. Um, or v- how about verse 12? Verse 12. Okay. Um, through what? Uh, through 20. Through 20? All right. So what do you think, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that it is, so it is not the will of my Father who is, make sure we get the not there. (laughs) It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever has you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Would, uh, I've talked a lot about this subject. Would, Greg, would you mind to start walking through this idea of church discipline and and, and because to a lot of people it sounds foreign because a lot of us didn't grow up necessarily in churches that practiced it. It could sound cruel. Like, why, what is this? You're in front of the whole church. You're telling someone sin and you're, are you condemning them? How is this loving? I, I, just some thoughts about the whole topic. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's the logical, necessary, biblical outflow of a right understanding of church membership, the right understanding of being a Christian. I mean, when we you know, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're professing that we are agreeing to certain things as true and then committing our life to certain things to line up with what we're professing. And when we come together as a local church, we're saying this is what we're going to do together. We're committing our, ourselves uh, to, to worship together, to pray together, to serve together. Um, and so we're, we're making a commitment um, in light of the fact that we're saying this is who Jesus is, what he's done, and this is what I'm committing my life to. And so church discipline flows out of that in that if someone who has professed faith in Jesus stops professing that faith or starts living in a way that's contrary to that faith, it is, it is um, our responsibility as the body of Christ to try to bring them back in line with what they profess. Um, it's just basic Christian accountability. Um, and if someone refuses to, to come back to Christ, to come back to their profession and to try to live in a way that lines up with that, then that 
gives ground to question whether or not they actually make a good, a, a true profession. They might have it intellectually in their head, but if their life and their commitments are going astray from that, then that's not what a Christian is. Um, and so the process of church discipline, I mean, the ultimate goal of this is restoration. Because right. um, like you said, some people say, well, that's mean, that's cruel. How could you do that? No, I mean, church discipline, when, when a, a member of a church comes under the process of discipline, the goal for, for us as elders, the goal for the rest of the church is to bring them back so that we don't lose them. That, that's why the, the, the story of the wandering sheep comes right yeah. before this, because mm, if good. one of the hundred sheep wanders astray, the goal isn't to judge and mock and make fun of that sheep. The, the goal is to pursue that sheep, leave the 99, find the one that's straying, and bring the, bring the, bring the sheep back to the fold. That's the whole yeah. goal of this process. And I mean, we, we actually, if a church does not engage in discipline on someone who is in sin and refuses to repent and turn away from that, we're denying our faith in Jesus as well, um, in effect, because we're saying it doesn't matter um, how you live. It doesn't matter if you say you know Christ and you still live a life that's contrary to him. And so it's, it's first we, we're looking at it to restore that individual but also we have to maintain the integrity of who we are as a church. We don't have a right to call ourselves a church if we're not going to say, you, you know, not only you must believe in Jesus to be saved, but you've got to live in a way that's consistent with that. Don't you say it's that? I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. It's, it doesn't seem like the most loving thing to do, but it surely does. If I am going off the, the path, I need someone to love me well enough to come and share the truth. And so we believe it's the most loving for whoever is uh, straying away. We believe it's the most loving for the rest of the congregation as they see um, that our pursuit of the, of the one sheep and that they see also are convicted to say, I don't want to stray away. We believe it's the most loving thing to do for the rest of the world watching, for the unbeliever to say, hey, wait a second. A church isn't full of people that are just living like the world. The church is to be different, set apart, sanctified in such a way that they live in a, in a way worthy of the gospel. And so if someone's not doing that, we are not loving them well, I don't think, without that pursuit. Or the church well, like you said, Greg, or the world well, anybody. Certainly not loving the Lord Jesus well. Can I make one more comment on that? That's something that just came to me. You hear a lot of, a lot of people who have like been in church to some degree and then they, why won't you go back to church? Well, there's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites in church. Mm -hmm. Again, no, no process is going to perfectly satisfy everyone, but one of the reasons why that's even a thing, why they're saying, well, there's just a bunch of hypocrites is because they've been in churches that don't practice church discipline. They don't, they don't hold their membership to a level of just basic Christianity. And so they see people constantly professing faith, but then denying it by how they live. And so it, it, in terms of a testimony, like you were saying to people, you know, church discipline and church membership together, it eliminates a lot of the negative responses that people typically have to churches in our culture. Just to give, to give just one, like a concrete sort of example, say that there's a couple in their mid-20s who are members of this church. I'm just, this is not a true story, just making this up. There's a couple in their mid-20s. They are dating, they're not married, and they're members of this church, and we find out somehow that they're actually living together which had been hidden. So we find out they're living together, they're sleeping together. They're not married. Okay, well, immediately someone needs to love them by not just letting that happen. So someone goes and confronts them one-on-one. -on -one. If they say, yeah, we're getting married in six months, it's not a big deal. They go, uh-oh. 
So then you go find two or th- one or two others, right? So two or three, like Jesus said, come. And then now three people re- rebuke the couple and say, listen, we love you guys too much. This is destructive. This is, this is not what God has called you to do. Please repent. You, one of you got to move out. You got to stop this before you get married. Like you got to hold off. And they say, yeah, I, we don't see this as being a big deal. Like I, we're, 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 we're going to get married soon. It's fine. Well, then at that point, you know, this may take, you know, a period of weeks, months. Eventually, then we'd have a members meeting. And in the members meeting, we would say, okay, X and Y, these two people are not married, but they're sleeping together. They're living together. They refuse to repent. Uh, They are no longer living a lifestyle of repentance. Therefore, we we need to vote. And the church would all reach out to them in some sense. And if they refuse to listen to the entire church, then we would have a vote to remove them from membership. And that's not one of those like, man, I'm so glad, you know, we got these people out of the church. It's like a weeping with tears sort of experience where you say, this is heartbreaking. There's no delight in this, but it must be done. Uh, We're going to remove them from membership because if we let that couple to continue to live as members in good standing, what are we saying about sexual morality to the rest of our members? It's not a big deal. And what are we saying to the outside world? It's not a big deal. And what are we saying to the couple? It's not a big deal. Like if, if I, 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 my son is six and my daughter Molly is four, if Micah is misbehaving and we don't discipline him, well, then Molly is going to start misbehaving because we're not disciplining Micah. And so discipline is not just for the individual. It also shows everyone around, this is serious. God takes unrepentant, willful sin extraordinarily seriously. And the mark of a Christian is not perfection, but it is repentance, a continual lifestyle of confession and repentance. And if a person is just locked into sin, uh, that's, that's serious stuff. And the reason we have to go to the church is that, and that's it kind of escaped me until recently, that verse 17 there. And um, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let uh, uh, him be um, to you a Gentile and a tax collector. So that's the reason, because I think some People would say, well, why do you have to bring it before the whole church? Isn't this more of a private thing? We're just trying to follow Matthew 18. Right. Yeah, and I think Jesus is very clear on this, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. We want to submit to the Bible, no matter what the Bible says. I mean, no matter how countercultural the Bible is, we want to come under the Word of God and say, what does the Bible teach? And I want to submit to it, no matter how hard it is. And this is so clearly taught in the Bible. I mean, church discipline is so clearly taught. It is the loving thing to do. I think so. We need to say it's biblical. We want to submit to the to the Bible. Number two, it is loving. Like I'm thinking, my my son is three and a half. If he was heading off to like a huge cliff, he's about to fall off this huge cliff, and I just let him go. That's not loving at all. And I'm going to run after him and stop. Like come back. Well, in the same sense, if we are, if you see somebody drifting away to this giant cliff, like like he may, you're just going to do everything you can to, to save them. And the story I've told is the one from the 1992 Olympics with this guy Derek Redmond who was running. 400 meters semifinal. He was from Great Britain. He comes up lame in the middle of the race. If you've never seen it, it's, it's worth Googling and watching it. And he can't even make it like to the end of the race. And his father is in the stands. His father comes running down and comes beside him. And they weep. His son weeps as they, he helps his son across the finish line. That's a beautiful picture of this pastoral care that we should have for other members who come up lame or, or maybe drifting off the path. And we want to run after them in a loving way and say, come back. Like, come back. You're, you're in sin. Come back. And let's run together. Let's race together. So it's, it's biblical and it's loving. And we have to see it as counterculture as it is. It's biblical. And it is. The, I mean, if we were going away from Christ. We want people. I want someone to come after me and tell me, come back, uh, because it's the loving thing. I mean, can you talk about the, the study in, the, in Georgia, the, the Baptist Church, oh, yeah. just to mention that? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, a guy named Gregory Wills, who's a professor, used to be at Southern Seminary, uh, <laughs> he wrote a book called Democratic Religion, which is about uh, basically Southern Baptist life from the mid-1750 through past the Civil War. 
And he focuses on the state of Georgia, which was kind of convenient since we happen to live in Georgia. So I was reading this book, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about all these different churches in Georgia in that time period. But the stuff that really, it's pretty astonishing to read. Uh, he said, looking at all the minutes of, of, of Baptist church meetings where they write down all that happens and all the membership information, uh, they did a massive research of Georgia Southern Baptist churches, and what they found was 2 to 3% it may have actually been 3 to 4% of members every year were put under church discipline in the, in the Baptist churches. So 2 to 3% of the members. So if you had a 100-person church, three or four people out of the 100-person church would be disciplined every year. That means begin that process of confronting them. And then 1 or 2% were actually excommunicated annually. 40,000 people were excommunicated from Baptist churches in the first half of the, uh, of the uh, you know, from 18... Uh, 100 to like 1860 or something like 40,000 people were excommunicated in Georgia Baptist churches alone. Now, after the Civil War, for whatever reason, people really got sort of tired of church discipline and it began dropping down. And when you turn to about the turn of the century, around 1900, church discipline virtually disappears in the Southern Baptist world. And it doesn't make a return until really the 80s or so. And then the 90s, it starts picking back up. And with ministries like Nine Marks, it's been a huge deal. I think there's more church discipline going on now than has been going on in 100 years. But I want, want it to be known, just because we don't remember it happening doesn't mean it wasn't part of Baptist life, and ultimately it's part of biblical life, which is the most important thing. But I was shocked to learn that 1% to 2% of members of Baptist churches were excommunicated every year in the state of Georgia over a 60-year period. That's amazing statistic. So um, it's not something that's unheard of in church history. It's just we've gotten slack in the last century. Yeah, and even to lack of attendance. I think we need yeah. to mention that. You know, even just if someone uh, refuses... Just incoming for whatever reason. We need to go after them and just say, no, no, that's part of being uh, in a church is that there's, and we know there's reasons physically sometimes people yeah. can't come. So not trying to be, you know, over the top on that, but to say this needs to be uh, a place that you're continuing to come to if you're a member. Yeah, if a person's living 15 minutes down the road and they're not sick or they're not elderly or anything like that, they live 15 minutes away from the church, they're a member of the church, and they haven't come in 12 months. And you, you contact them and they say, why aren't you coming? Well, I just, as, you know, I'm just having a hard time dragging myself to church on Sunday. You know, that, I've actually had someone say that to me. So I'm just having a hard time dragging myself to church. Well, there's no legitimate reason. It's just I don't want to go. And it goes on and on, even after confrontation. Well, that would also be uh, something where eventually you say, well, how are you on the team if you're not coming to practice, if you're not coming to the game? <laughs> how are you in any way actually on the team? So, Isn't that what Dever said about his church? Like probably the number one way that reason for church discipline or even removing people was non-attendance. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because what can you do if someone doesn't come for, yeah. and there's not a good reason? At some point, no. inevitably, that, that's, that's refusing to – I mean – don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's a pretty clear command. And if someone just says, I don't have, I just don't want to go. Mm -hmm. Well, then that's, that's a pretty serious deal. All right, we can, let's move to the membership covenant just for a moment. You should have a separate sheet that uh, is stapled together that says biblical obligations of elders and members at North Avenue Church. And Scott, could you just start, I want to read through this document. Uh, can you start reading about the elders, the first page? Yeah. Biblical obligations of the elders to the North Avenue Church body. As shepherds and overseers of a local church, elders are entrusted with teaching, protecting, leading, equipping, and caring for the corporate church body and her individual members. The following is an overview of the requirements for elders as spelled out within the scriptures. The elders covenant to help train up future elders and deacons according to the criteria assigned to them in the scriptures. 
Again, the elders covenant to prayerfully seek wisdom from the Lord in guiding our church community and stewarding her resources to the best of our ability based on our study of the scriptures and our following of the Holy Spirit who inspired all scripture. The elders covenant to care for the church and seek her growth in love, truth, holiness, and unity in the gospel. The elders covenant to provide teaching and counsel for the whole of scripture, whether that unchanging teaching is considered in season or out of season by our ever-changing culture. We covenant to equip the members of the church for the work of ministry and to be on guard against false teachers and teachings. We covenant the elders covenant to lovingly lead the process of biblical church discipline when necessary for the glory of God, the good of the one disciplined, and the health of the church as a whole. And the elders covenant to set an example and join members in fulfilling the obligations of church membership stated below. Let me keep going. Yeah. Biblical obligations of the members to the North Avenue church body. As those who have expressed the grace of a life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to reflect the character of Christ through the pursuit of godly attitudes and actions and the rejection of those that are contrary to Scripture. The Bible refers to this reality as living by the Spirit. The requirements of this membership covenant are in no way intended as an addition to the biblical obligations of a believer. Rather, this document functions primarily as an accessible yet non-exhaustive explanation of what the Scriptures teach about the obedience that saving faith produces. I covenant to submit to the authority of the Scriptures. Oh, wait, sorry, okay. sorry, Scott, I should pause you right there. So, so again, it's important. We're not trying to add anything to what Scripture teaches. We're simply trying to give a basic sense of what Scripture is teaching. And this next section, so these last, what, two pages or so, this is what all members are covenanting to one another and to the church. So this is not just for the elders. This part here is for all members. Uh, this is part of the covenant that we make as we join the church. So I covenant to submit to the authority of the Scriptures as the final and decisive word on all issues of life and doctrine of behavior and belief. I covenant to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through a regular practice of the spiritual disciplines, including Bible reading, prayer, and loving fellowship with the other members of our local church. I covenant to follow the command and example of Jesus by participating in the ordinance prescribed to his church, by being baptized after my conversion as a public display of the truth of my union with Christ in his death and resurrection, by regularly remembering and celebrating the person and work of Christ through communion. I covenant to regularly participate in the life of North Avenue Church by attending weekly services, engaging in gospel-centered community, and serving the other members of this church. As Hebrews 10 says, we commit to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I covenant to wisely steward the resources God has given me, including time, talents, spiritual gifts, and finances. This includes giving that is sacrificial, cheerful, and voluntary. I covenant to strive by the Holy Spirit's grace and power to walk in holiness in all areas of life as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. I make it my aim to put my ungodly attitudes and actions to death by the Spirit's strength. Below are a few examples of actions addressed in the scriptures. I will practice complete chastity unless married and, if married, complete fidelity within heterosexual and monogamous marriage. This means, among other things, that regardless of my marital status, I will pursue purity and fight against lust and all sexual temptation toward immoral practices such as adultery, premarital sex, homosexual behavior, pornography, and sexually perverted speech. If married, I will seek to preserve the gift of marriage and agree to walk through steps of marriage reconciliation at North Avenue Church, including meeting with the elders before pursuing divorce from my spouse. I will refrain from illegal drug use and drunkenness. I will fight my temptation to gossip, slander, and cause disunity in the church. I will forgive from my heart offenses committed against me by others because I have been forgiven of so much more by Jesus. To use my freedom in Christ to best serve, so I covenant to use my freedom in Christ to best serve and love others while resisting the temptation to abuse my liberty by presenting stumbling blocks to another. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I covenant to submit to the discipline of God through His Holy Spirit by following the biblical procedures for church discipline where sin is evident in another. The hope of such discipline being repentance and restoration, receiving righteous and loving discipline when approached biblically by fellow believers. I covenant to do the following. When I sin, confess my sin to God and to fellow believers, repent and seek help to put my sin to death. I covenant to submit to the elders and other appointed leaders of the church and diligently strive for unity and peace within the church. I covenant to do the following. Should I leave the church for righteous reasons, to notify the elders, to seek another church with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. Jerry, any comments just on, it can be somewhat overwhelming to read this, this whole list together, but any, any comments on, on uh, this covenant? Yeah, no, I think it's just good to get, to kind of see what, I mean, it's always good to read that to me, to just say, hey, you know, how am I doing on those things? And uh, so no comments specific, specifically, I don't think, but it's, again, so there's really no surprises. This is what we want to do as elders, and this is what we are expecting um, from our members. Any other comments on the covenant? If not, let's pick back up with the nine marks sheet again, but we're going to start back with number one, and we'll just kind of move through uh, these with uh, some, I think, relative speed here. Number one is expositional preaching. Uh, Greg, would you say a word about why preaching generally through books of the Bible and those kinds of things are something that we want to emphasize at our church? Yeah. um, Expositional preaching, expository preaching, um, people will define it. Um, a lot of you know different ways, different nuances. But when we think of expositional preaching, we think in in terms of something consecutive exposition, meaning we take a book, we start at the beginning, and we preach through every single verse in that book until we get to the end. Um, what that does, um, it keeps the the preachers accountable, so that we don't just preach what's comfortable to us. We have to preach everything that's in the text if we're going to say that the whole Bible is inspired by God, the whole Bible is His Word. Then every single verse matters, um, and so it helps us stay accountable to make sure as we're doing our best to teach the Word of God that we teach everything that's there, and we can't run and hide from things that are hard or difficult um, or uncomfortable. Um, and so that's one huge benefit. The other benefit is it gives us a sense of the, the, what's called the whole counsel of God. Um, when we preach through books, um, we, we learn to understand you know, how doctrine is developed, how um, the cross is explained and applied in different situations. We, we just get a sense of all that God's doing, a sense, a greater appreciation for who Christ is and what he's done because all the scripture points to him. And so as we preach through all of Scripture, more and more we're brought to a point of appreciating what He's done, understanding what He's done. Um, and also, preaching through books is one of the best ways to equip the church to read and study the yep. Bible. Yep. I mean, I, I don't know who I heard this from originally, but it's been said by a number of people. Um, you know, church members will learn to study their Bible based on how their pastors handle it. Mm-hmm. And so if a pastor is just cherry picking verses every week or a passage here and there, what, what he wants to preach on, he's not teaching his people to understand the Bible. But when you work from beginning to end in a book and you don't skip anything, what are we doing? We're one, teaching every word matters. Two, this is how you study the Bible. This is how you get the riches of God's word for your own life. And if, if we say we believe X, Y, and Z, 
you're really put to the test on whether what you say you believe is biblical mm -hmm. when you have to go straight through books because you can't hide from yeah. anything. So if there's something that you go, this doesn't quite fit my theology, well, then you're going to be embarrassed in front of your whole church because you're going to go through the paragraph and they're going to all see that it doesn't say what you just said. And so it really does hold you accountable because you know, like, you, mm -hmm. whatever you say about this topic, you know it's coming in the Gospel of Matthew or the Galatians or Genesis or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know it's coming for you and you can't just skip over it and try to avoid it or tweak mm -hmm. what Scripture is saying. Scott, thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it avoids doing the hobby horse. We talked about this before and the other time. We, like, if you have hobby horses, you're going to preach your hobby horse things like over and over and over again. Maybe be like redeeming the time. That's what I would do all over and over and over again. Uh, so uh, Jerry, Romans 8.28 would be one of the big hobby horses. We get, we get to teach it in Sunday school this Sunday. Yeah, but, two uh, days, one day. We're there finally. <laughs> but it just guards you from, from doing hobby horse type stuff. And I mean, we grew up hearing my dad do this. He would go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament book. And I think just at faith in 28 years, he preached basically through 40 books of the 66 books of the Bible. So what a privilege for the people of God to sit and just, you get so much of the Bible you get exposed to. And it forces you to deal with difficult, like you assigned me the genealogy in Matthew 1. Like I never in a million years would have chosen that as a text to preach. And yet it was beneficial for me just to study it. So, I mean, it is, it's helpful for the preacher and it's helpful for the congregation in, in tremendous ways. And sure. does it mean though that like you guys are going to go topical for a little mm -hmm. bit in Sunday yeah. school? Yeah. So it's not saying that it has to be, but even in that, you're going to be scriptural yeah. first. Well, it provides, right? it provides the right foundation for addressing anything in a topical way. Yeah. Because if we're working straight through and we're reading things in context, understanding the intent of the author, then when we go to address an issue topically, then one, the expectation is going to be there. Whatever text you use, you better be using it the way the text is meant to be used. Um, and so it gives, it gives that foundation so that when we go with a topical message or a topical emphasis, like it's coming out of our right. study of the text. It's not one we're imposing on the text. It's one that's coming out of our study of the text. And, and another thought on this too, um, when we preach consecutively through books, we're honoring the Bible the way God gave it. God didn't give us little snippets of all kinds of things. He gave us books that were written from beginning to end with thoughts that develop, stories that develop. And when we don't preach the Bible the way God gave it, we're not honoring God and we're not honoring his word as he intends it to be read. Um, and so it's, again, we, we want to glorify the Lord, not just in what we preach, but in how we go about getting to what we preach. Right. No, that's helpful. Okay, so that's number one, ex, ex, uh, expositional preaching. Number two, uh, biblical theology. I'll just say really, really quickly about this, that uh, not only does God give us these books, but he also gives a whole bunch of books in a certain order over time. And we want to be aware of where Isaiah is in biblical history, if we preach from Isaiah, to know that uh, he doesn't just fall out of the sky. He fits within a larger biblical storyline. And we want, we want to be able to hold the whole Bible together as a massive the fancy word is a meta-narrative, a, a large overarching story that holds all the other stories together. So we, we want to be aware of our biblical theology. Number three, a biblical understanding of the gospel. Scott, a word about that one? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the gospel is so massively important for, for the Christian. And I've, I've said this before in terms of Jerry Bridges would say, you know, you give the gospel to a new Christian uh, and then you, you put it on the shelf and think, you know, now you live your Christian life. And he said, then you're removing the power to live the Christian life by removing the gospel. But I, mean, I think there's a temptation to undermine, to not emphasize sin. Uh, there, there's an emphasis to overemphasize the love of God, but we want to do both sides of it. I mean, I think the more you understand the seriousness of our sin, the more amazed you will be by, by, the, by, the, by the gospel, by, by Christ's sacrifice uh, for our sins. And I just think the gospel ought to be growing. We ought to be growing in our amazement of the gospel 
over time. And we want to, as a church, come back to the gospel again and again because we, we're in desperate need of the gospel consistently, regularly. And one of the reasons, if you fill out the church membership form, we have a, a part about your testimony, but then underneath it, we always have a little spot that says, can you explain the gospel in a few sentences? Well, why do we do that? Well, the gospel is essential to, to understanding what Christianity is. And we would love, I mean, we, we, we want all of our members to be able to articulate the gospel in like a minute. You know, like to, to be able to give the basic message of the gospel in 60 seconds or less is just something we should all be able to do. I mean, we should all be able to put the most basic message of the gospel together. And so, including sin, Christ's perfection, His death on our behalf, His resurrection, and our need of, of being saved by faith, those things should be something that we're all able to explain to anyone that we, that we come into contact with. Number four, biblical understanding of conversion. Jerry, a word about why this is an important topic of having a biblical understanding of conversion. Yeah, Mark's called uh, sometimes the way we do things, in, especially in the South maybe, is uh, justification by birth, you know? Like if you're born, then you're probably no Jesus, right? Because that's, you, you're sort of in the south of the Mason-Dixon line or something. I'm not really sure how. But this is not the biblical understanding of conversion. And Mark and I certainly see that um, at school, just where uh, students, as they grow up, they're in a Christian school, just assume that they know the Lord Jesus. And so we really want to be biblical as closely as we can be. And, uh, and I know that it could seem judgmental to say, no, this is truly what, it's not praying a prayer when you're seven. It is loving the Lord Jesus with, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It is a true conversion, a changed life, a love for Scripture. Now, none of all these things we're not going to be at all perfect at. But Mark said a um, hundred times that it's not perfection, but it is a change of direction. That, uh, and, and this is such a joy when you see it, um, where old things pass away, all things become new. It is a dramatic change when Mark and Scott experienced it um, in their own lives. It's just a, and we know that not everybody has that dramatic change. You know, and, and it's like, and Greg's been great about pointing out that oftentimes we want our kids to love the Lord Jesus when they're eight or whatever. I believe that truly that when I was five, the Lord changed my heart or six. So I, I believe that, that that can happen and does happen and it's a glorious thing. It's equally glorious when it happens at that age. So we don't want to ever make it seem like, oh, it's got to be this dramatic thing when you're after 21. That's not at all what we're saying, but um, we just want to be, have a biblical understanding of conversion, I think, just like it says there. That's helpful. Anything else on, the, on that point? I, I do want to draw the one thing out, um, the last sentence there, number four, the last part of that. It does need to produce fruit to be judged a true conversion. Mm -hmm. um, and again, depending on where you are in life, how old you are, what you've gone through, like there's a lot of wisdom for that. But when you, you know, use the common term, when you get saved, it's going to produce a noticeable change. Like um, that's why it says not just a change of attitude, but a change of affection, a change of nature. Um, you know, we're really, we're, we're being, we're going this way. Conversion means we start going this way. Um, and over time, the fruit we bear should be the fruit of someone who knows Jesus. I mean, like, if you say you're an apple tree, but you keep, you know, producing oranges, 
You're not an apple tree, no matter how hard you want. Well, but I really want to be an apple tree. You're not. I mean, true conversion produces Christ-like character. And again, it's something we grow in over time. And the more we walk with Jesus, the more other people around us will say, I can see. Like, it's real. Like, you're not the same person you used to be. You're not perfect, but you're not what you were. I mean, conversion produces real change. And on that note, the number five, a biblical understanding of evangelism, part of what we're talking about there is not just that we should give the gospel to unbelievers. I think everybody would agree that that's something we should be doing. But it's more like, are we, when we do evangelism, let me, let me just read part of this here, because I think this is important. Look, look at number five. The way we evangelize speaks volumes about how we understand conversion and further what we understand about the good news. If we believe that people are essentially good and are seeking Jesus, we evangelize using half-truths and tend to elicit false conversions. When we present a watered-down gospel, we end up with a watered-down church. We need to be faithful to present the full gospel, the good news with the bad, and leave the results to God. So the idea here is, if I can just get someone to say, say the sinner's prayer, then check, I've, got, I've, I've converted them, I've led them to Christ. Well, I mean, they may have become a Christian, but we, we're not looking for the sinner's prayer. We're looking for the transformation of their life. Have they really trusted Christ and repented of sin? And that's going to show it, like you just said, Greg, it's going to show in fruit over time that's going to come in their life. Can I say, I, I, yeah. I, I feel like I need to mention this just, again, because of the Baptist context that we're in. Um, the, the language that a lot of people use, um, my wife had this growing up in the churches she was involved with. You know, you accept Christ as your Savior, down the road, you commit to him as your Lord. Yeah, yep. Like they divide Jesus up. So the gospel they preach, it's, you know, well, hey, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. If I just accept Jesus, okay, I'm good. Do I have to be serious about it? No, you can do that later and it doesn't matter. Absolutely. My uh, brother-in-law, my wife's brother, you know, because of that kind of bifurcation of conversion, you know, his attitude was, well, if I'm still saved, why is it going to matter why I live? I mean, by God's grace, he was gloriously converted in the last several years and baptized. And it's just amazing to see how God has changed him. But before that, it was like, right. well, what's it matter? I mean, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. So I'm going to, you know, if, if it doesn't matter if I live for Jesus or not, then why should I? I mean, I can put on the good show, but then secretly in my heart, I can desire all these things and do all these things on the side. And it's okay. And it's like when we preach the gospel we're not just saying, hey, here's salvation from your sins. We're calling, and I mean, Jesus did, repent to a new way of life. And we have to include that in the gospel. It's not something in addition to the gospel down the road. And again, we're not calling people to perfection, but we are saying, when you come to Jesus, you're committing your whole life to him and saying, I'm going to do my best to submit to him and follow his, his ways, whatever that means. All right, we're going to take a 10-minute break right now, and we'll pick this back up in just a minute.